Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. That life is a continuous succession of you know that the that the ending to the overture of eighteen the eighteen twelve overture by Peter Tchaikovsky goes on for at least forty five minutes. It has the longest single bass horn tuba sousaphone run. In all of recorded music, it has. It goes. Help! Help! We're drowning. It's coming in. the entire bass horn part of the overture to 18, 1812 overture by Chicago, which he, by his own admission, said it was the worst piece of tripe he ever wrote. Very embarrassed about it after it was over. The cannons, I tell you about the time the cannon went off. Oh, yeah, they got cannons in the end of that one, and, and the cannon went off. Uh, we had a cannon that we had made out of a milk can, a big Borden's milk can, you know, the kind with a big metal top. I don't mean the kind of can you buy at the Deitches or something. A big can, big 32-gallon can that they transport milk in, and we had this, uh, this, <laughs> this blank pistol. It was a 38, a great big police 38 blank. It shot blanks. And when we would come charging down the home stretch with, how did it go? going, they're hitting big bells, you see. It's supposed to be Moscow celebrating the victory over the French, over Napoleon. Boing, 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 boing. They're hitting chimes, tremendous thing. And we had our cannon going in the back there. Of course, when they did it at Ch- in, in, in the Chicago Stadium there, in the Chicago Soldiers Field, they had real cannons. Oh, yeah, they had an entire artillery brigade, or whatever it is the artilleries call themselves, a, a, a battery. And they were shooting 105s. <laughs> and, the, and the time that, that, that Dr. Frederick Stock 
was conducting the Chicago Philharmonic in an epoch-making, uh, wonderful, uh, uh, complete recording and a complete exposition of the overture to 1812 by Peter Tchaikovsky. Well, they came charging into the final home ground, and the, the Chicago 107th Hussars, or whatever that, that crowd of, uh, of uh, National Guard nuts was, was called, they were, they were shooting their 105s out. Well, I don't know whether you've ever seen a blank 105 go off in a closed stadium, because boom, and that great big wad sails across the stands, goes whistling out and over the end zone and into the crowd, boom, you'd see people, boom, boom, bang, 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 boy, oh, boy, <laughs> my old man, almost, I'll tell you, he, that was one of his great moments in his life, you don't want to hear any more musical memoirs here tonight, do you? About how the how the uh, the can we had in the middle of our well, it was it was the national tournament. You know, the bands have national tournaments, and uh, bands and orchestras, high school class A bands, and we went to the national. And our big thing was the most florid, spectacular, sensational rendition of the overture to 1812 that had been heard ever since the fall of Napoleon outside of Moscow. I mean, the retreat. It was fantastic. Well, we thought it was. <laughs> oh, boy, I'll tell you. The, 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 the tuba section and the trumpet section came in 32 bars early on the ending because Dirks panicked right in the middle of the great retreat from Moscow. He did. He panicked. He, he signaled us in. Did I tell you about that that night? The night that, 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 that you know, it's terrible when you see the coach flub it. Really, completely flub it. He, we're going bum, 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 and we're counting one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, bum, 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 one, two, three, four, who, two, three, four, three, two, three. I wonder how many of you have ever sat in the back of a gigantic band and counted out, say, forty-five measures of rest. Uh, yeah, oh yeah, you know, one, two, three, four, two, two, three, four, three, two, three, four, four, two, three, four, five, two, three, four, six, two, you got 45 to go, see, and now you're 37, two, three, four, 38, two, three, four, 39, and he signals you in, you know, you're 45 measures ahead, what, 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 and you figure, well, I, 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 I've lost up, I've counted wrong, one guy goes, oom, 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 he starts blowing, and it's not sounding right, and everybody turns, and then there's a terrible confusion, you can't stop a tuba section when it started, you just can't. And so all eight sousaphones roared in at least 19 measures ahead on that fantastic cadenza that starts on bum 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 it goes like that and you get six gigantic sousaphones all going full blast playing the Marseillaise or playing playing the overture it's just uh, you just can't well of course what that did then was panic the guy with the bells so he starts belting the bells. He starts. He figures he's been counting wrong. You know, he starts belting the bells. Boing, da, doing, da, da, doing. Boing, 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 boing. It goes boing, boing, boing. He's hitting them. And about halfway through the tenth measure that we had gone in early, Dirks realizes what's happened. The French horns have already. <laughs> the French horns are caught right in the middle of their blat. And, and by this gigantic sound, it's just all falling apart. All fall and the guy with the cannon then panics and starts firing the cannon. Well, I can only tell you that it is like it is like being in an air raid where 
total disaster has hit, and it's every man for himself. Guys were, were playing the St. Louis Blues. Other guys started out of sheer nervousness, started to, <laughs> started to play the high school song. Anything, you know, just keep anything going, and they're blowing. They don't know where they are. The whole thing, there's 117 guys charging around, and this guy in the back starts for... <laughs> it's going like that. Well, he, he let's go. <laughs> he had two 38s. And he fired off the first six. Boom, boom, pow, pow. Well, at about the eighth shot, when he's going through his second clip, the thing blew up. Yes, it blew up. I'll never forget that. It went boom. Suddenly the top of the can flew off, and we could hear this, this muffled scream of, of, of pain. His gun blew up in his head, you know, on top of everything else. <laughs> and Dirks is up there. He looks like he's made out of cream of wheat. You know, he's up there, and he's, he's, cra he's got 17 arms like one of these Indian goddesses, and he's waving them all at once, trying to stop everybody or to try to get them back in or something. And the judges are out there just writing down. Just writing down, man. They are writing. Oh, oh, oh. oh nobody knows the troubles I've seen. Oh, nobody knows. Hold it there, gang. Speaking of troubles, I'll tell you. It's, uh, have you ever had the feeling, Walt, I know you have, have you ever had the feeling, Walt, that it's getting out of hand? Have you really? And you don't know quite what is getting out of hand? It's just getting out of hand, like, like there's this magazine pageant. They've got an article next week entitled, uh, it's entitled uh, very succinctly and right to the point, Make Your Child a Sensible Drinker. <laughs> oh, boy, I caught that one going away. What a beautiful scene you can see now. It, it starts out like this, see? Here's Daddy now, standing back next to his bar, which is just on the other side of the television set. Daddy, who is a hip new father, who has just read the article, Make Your Child a Sensible Drinker. He has removed from his little portable bar refrigerator a tray of ice cubes. He reaches into the, the little drink portable bar there, and he has pulled out a bottle of Gordon's gin, see? And now coming in from outside where he has been playing with his yo-yo and the little chick next door comes little Jimmy, age five. Hey, Jimmy, come here. Come here, Jimmy. Come on, Jimmy. Come on over here to Daddy, Jimmy. Come on, Jimmy. Come on now. Come on. Daddy's not going to hurt you this time. Come on. Come on over to old Daddy here. You see, Jimmy... Now, now, look, you've seen Daddy. You have seen Daddy, Jimmy. Now, now, now sit here for a minute. Da now, Daddy wants to talk to you. Sit on Daddy's knee, Jimmy. Oh, little Jimmy. That's all right, Martha. I'm going to start now. Yeah, yeah, I think the kid's ready. Yeah. Now, Jimmy, have you wondered, have you wondered about Saturday nights when Daddy falls down and hits his head on the pool table downstairs? Have you wondered about that, Jimmy? Have you wondered on, on those nights when Daddy, when Daddy sings and yells and hollers? Have you wondered? Now, I don't want you to have the wrong idea about what that is. Have you wondered on Sunday mornings, Jimmy, when you want to come in with Daddy and, and play with Daddy, how Daddy screams, Get away! My head's killing me, kid! Well, have you wondered about those things, Jimmy? Well, Jimmy, today I'm going to get you off on the right foot, Jimmy. Now, you see, Jimmy... This is what we call a martini shaker. See, this. This is a martini shaker. 
Now say it after Daddy. See if you can understand. Martini. You no, know, no. Martini shaker. Very good, Jimmy. Now, now this is a martini stirrer. This is you. You stir your martini with this. Now see, see. Now, this is called gin. Gin. It looks like wadi. It looks like wawa, but it is gin. It's called gin. Now, a lot of kids don't mix a good martini, Jimmy, and I want you to learn how to mix a good martini. No decent martini today is mixed in anything less than a 10 to 1 ratio. Now, now, oh, well, I'll explain what ratio means later. Now, you see, this, Jimmy, is vermouth. Vermouth. Say it. No, not vermouth. Vermouth. Vermouth, like varmint, like uh, Virginia. No, no, not vermouth, vermouth, vermouth. That's good. There you got it. Now, that's very good. Now, say it again. Now, what is this, Jimmy? I just told you, it starts with a j. That's right, Jim. Now, now, what is this? That's right, vermouth. Now, now, now I'm going to review. What is this? Now, come on, will you concentrate, kid? Look, we'll get to the television later. Now, look, you you, you see cartoons all day long. Now, I'm going to try to teach you something here. Now, this is a martini shaker. Say it now. Very good. Now, martini shaker. And what is this? Very good. Hey, you know, Martin, this kid's all right. That's a martini stirrer. Now... Now, we are going to make a very dry martini. Do you understand? <laughs> no, no, no. No, it's wet, actually, Jimmy. But it is dry, meaning not sweet. Well, you know how Yoo-Hoo tastes. Well, this is the opposite, okay? Well, no, 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 no. Don't misunderstand me. Yoo-Hoo is good, Jimmy, and I like Yoo-Hoo. But this is different. Now, you see, now here's what you do. You take, now now watch, now say you're going to have six people over and you're going to make martinis for six. Now it is a good idea to double, make them doubles. Doubles, well that means twice, two, two, a large one, a very large one, a real big one. Well, all right, now watch Daddy. Now, Daddy will pour now the gin into the shaker. Easy now, see? Now you pour about this much, now that's six. Now, now watch me take the vermouth, just the touch of vermouth, now watch. Now, now you stir. You take the stirrer and you stir. Now just stick it in there. That's it, right? Just put it into the stirrer there and stir it around. Very good. Very good. Now, now, now here is a very important thing. Take all of your martini glasses in the, oh, say, two hours or an hour before and put them in. Now watch. Daddy has some cold glasses. See, he's put them in now. Now. Okay, now you pour into the cold glass. Easy now. Little twist out. Lemon peel. Peel. Lemon peel. Got it there? Well, no, we're not making lemonade, Jimmy. Not exactly. You don't put lemon juice in it. That's got lemonade. You just use the peel. Look, I don't want to explain to you why. It's just do it. Put the lemon peel in it. You want to learn how to do it or not? All right, now, just put the lemon peel in. Now, all right, now we're all set now. Now we both have martinis. You have in your hand, Jimmy, a martini. 
All right, now, now here's what you do. You see the, now here, take, take some of the little the cheese crunkles there. Now take a cheese crunkle now and eat a cheese crunkle. And now tell Daddy a funny story about what happened today when you were coming home from school. And while you were doing that, sip your martini. You don't drink it. No, no, don't gulp it. Oh, for God's sake. Wait a minute. Don't gulp it like that. Here. Now wait a minute. Hold it there, kid. Now just, just go. Sip gently your martini now and when you do that talk there that's very, very good kid very good <laughs> all right now i'll tell you what you do we'll pour another one now because any kid who's a sensible drinker can handle at least two martinis on an afternoon let's go kid <laughs> hey come on in martin come on <laughs> Why, you little bum, where'd you hear that story? <laughs> yeah, sure, come on, anytime, kid. <laughs> What'd you say your name was, kid? <laughs> you, often, you come around this joint often, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yes, make your kid a sensible drinker. Well, speaking of sensible... Oh, this is W-O-R-A-M and F-M'sville here in uh, New York. And uh, before they get up off the floor, hit them with a quick commercial there. Tony. Oh, rick a tick 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 wouldn't you rather have a have a Buick than that rotten bum you're living with? Quack, quack. Buick special. Buick special. Buick with Sabre. Buick with Sabre. Buick electric. Buick electric. And the Buick bombshell. Boom. Buick wildcat. Wildcat. And the Buick milk toast for little people who are very nervous. Quack. Well, we moved them Buicks off the shelves, didn't we, there? You know, <laughs> you know uh, it, it is, it is, a, you know, you can look at it a couple of ways there. I mean, uh, uh, that, that, if you extend that philosophy of, you know, to teach your kid to be a sensible drinker, you can teach him all kinds of things. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> uh, wouldn't, it be, wouldn't it have been great, old man, if at the age of nine in school you had really learned how to, uh, how to make the scene with the boss? You know, right from the very beginning. You know, too many guys, you know, too many guys from the very beginning of their lives are too truthful, you know? Yeah, you know, you, how many kids say, I don't like to play golf, or cry, I don't want to go out, you know, that kind of stuff. And that, that never helps you. It, it, just just to, teach your kid from the very beginning on how to be a good toady, how to become a yes man from the very beginning, how, how to start, you know, because education, you know, comes, I think, in about 19 different forms, and the one form that we rarely ever encounter it in 
is the form of what really happens to you in life. How much do you think do you learn in school that has any bearing at all, any relationship at all, with what you've learned in life? And uh, this is not a discussion. Oh, no, no. I mean about the real stuff. Uh, it really, it, 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 it's a, I, have, I have a feeling sometimes that education is a great game generally. Uh, unless it's a specific education for a specific technical thing that you do. But I think it's some kind of a great game that we have all learned to play, and somewhere along the line, this game has assumed the shape of some kind of an enormous, impregnable, just a, just a, a gigantic pyramid. And we all agree that we will be involved in this thing, <laughs> this thing. We will, we will play the game. It's like a big game of monolopy, uh, something. All, everybody agrees that it's only play money that you're playing with. And if you all accept the premise, it's okay. You know, you don't mind it. You can sit for the, the whole life, your whole life, and play Monopoly with the play money, and you can buy, play railroads and play things and back and forth. Yeah, and some people do. Some people spend their whole lives, in one way or another, making believe. Uh, and, and they will make believe to such an extent that many a college professor I know is so completely involved in the pyramid that he never really sees that it has any relationship to that stuff he sees on the street. You know, the guys laying in the, in the gutters and other guys fist fighting and people banging into each other with cars and wars blowing up and all that. The two things are separate, life and education. They rarely come into uh, contact, you know, they, they rarely touch. Really, it's, it's true. And I, I remember one time, you know, speaking of learning, the, the real education, this is a real education moment. One of the things that, generally speaking, we learn about various things in life. One of the things that we're always taught, we, we're taught such things as skill. We, we believe that when a guy plays a game, he plays a game. You know, we do. You believe that Mickey Mantle is always trying to hit the ball. You assume that. Yeah. You, you, you assume that, and, and oh, we go through life. We assume that when a guy's driving down the street, he's trying to drive his car right. What makes us assume that? Do you know that psychologists will tell you that more accidents are caused by design, by desire to get back at something, not even the guy in the other car. A desire, for example, to kill yourself. Yeah. A desire somehow to make one big statement, and the next thing you know, the guy has gone off and hit the center line. He's bounced off the safety island. He's gone through 17 yards and finally knocks down the side of a house. And everyone says, well, he must have fallen asleep at the wheel or had a heart attack. Well, now, we, that's because we assume that whenever somebody's doing something, he's trying to do it. We, we, you know, he's really trying to do it. Well, let me tell you the time that I learned that I learned something Boy, it has never left my consciousness ever because it hit me at a time when, one, I was very vulnerable, and two, it cost me D-E-A-U-X, bucks, dough, money, and money at a time when I had very little of it. Not that there's ever been many occasions when it's been the opposite, but I mean, I had none. Here, here you want to know the scene? All right, let, let us call this story the afternoon of the great ping-pong shark. Okay. I am this guy, see, you got to understand, I'm this guy, I have come out of the Midwest, where, you know, when a guy plays baseball or a guy plays football, it comes out of that morality that is part of American life regarding sports. When he plays baseball, when he plays football, it is always assumed that he's playing it, you know, he's really playing it, oh yeah. And once in a while we are shocked to the core 
when we find that somebody has thrown a game. And so we, 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 we pretend that this is a very unusual thing. And we also pretend then that we've got to catch the rotten culprits that were responsible for this rotten, dastardly deed. Well, <laughs> I came out of that background, you know. And, and uh, you know, I, I play everything I do, I do all the way. So I'm this, I'm this guy, and I'm in this army. Which, uh, of course, is one of the great things that you learn about life is that very few things ever seem to be what they are, and also very few things are what they seem to be, conversely. Uh, you, you assume that an army is always in a war, for example, to win the war. Not necessarily so. You assume that, say, uh, a general is in the war, and he's in the war because, you know, he's patriotic and all that. We never, we never seem to assume that, that, you know, he would love to get an extra star. We never assume that a dictator becomes a dictator for any other than some kind of nutty idealistic reason, unless he's a rotten dictator, in which case we always assume that he's a rotten skunk. Uh, whereas, as a matter of fact, everybody would like to be in charge of everything. No question about it. But we never want to assume that. We don't, we don't like that. But so, so for this reason, we believe every time a dictator gets in, he changes later. Castro changed. See, he started out with great ideas, and he wound up a tyrant. No, oh, no, 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 I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, this is part of the educational process, which you eventually have to learn, either that, or you'll either go out of your skull, you'll become a great abstractionist, <laughs> you'll, you'll, you'll become an ivory towerist, or you will become a stamp collector, or you, you can do any one of a thousand things to escape life. Yeah, you can, you can, uh, you can be a playwright, for example, and produce a whole make-believe world. As nothing whatsoever. As long as everybody accepts your convention, you're okay, you know. As long as everybody in the audience wants to make believe too, then you're all right. Uh, but I'll tell you how it happened to me. Right in this town, Tony. This is the town, boy. For any of you guys outside, you know, you don't see it as clearly as you ever do here, boy. Nor as sneakily. It's a great town. I, I can only recommend to those of you who think you know about it, come here for a while. You guys up in in in. In, in, in the fat clam Vermont, you know, they say, oh, yeah, I get letters from guys in, in Allentown. They'll say, well, you don't know. Oh, oh. Allentown is very, I'm sorry, fellas, in Allentown uh, or in any of the Allentowns all over the world, it is very hard to detect what's really going on because it hides better in Allentown. And, and you see, because with, with the numbers, with, with multiplicity comes a kind of nutty honesty. In short, when there are 14 million guys in one crowd, all those 14 million can really be as rotten as they want to be because they figure they can always melt into the crowd. You know, they kick you, belt you one, and disappear into the crowd. Now, uh, you don't see this so much in smaller towns, and it isn't because they're better in smaller towns. It's because the pressures are different. And I believe that as our world gets more and more populated and great, great hordes of people begin to cover the entire earth, you are going to see more and more how man really is, as opposed to when there are only three guys in a cave and they have to depend on each other to fend off the saber-toothed tigers. Very different when there are 14 million guys. Well, that's why I suggest you come here once in a while. So here's old Shep, see, fresh out of the Middle West, and I am now working my way slowly up the fantastic ladder of command. I am now a T-5 which means that I can yell at occasional PFCs, if they're little. And, and, uh, and, and you know, that kind of thing. So I've been, I've, been, uh, you know, I've been struggling along, and I'm in the Army, and I'm assigned to this place that was in such a backwash 
such an incredible, well, actually, it was the Everglades. It was, it was, we were surrounded by nothing but bellowing crocodiles and, and angry alligators and turtles. And once in a while, you'd hear the birds. Out there, be some kind, there was a, there's some kind of a big bird that hides in the swamp. I don't know what kind of a bird this is. He has yellow eyes and jowls. And he looks, out of the bur- uh, he looks out of the bushes once in a while and cries. You can just hear him crying. You know, he really, he cries. And, and then you hear, Boop! and one of the alligators goes. And that's about the extent of the social life where we were. And so, oh, yeah, guys would sit out in the, in the bushes and talk to the birds by the hours. Really, they would. I mean, you can't st- after you can't stand the first sergeant, after the first, after the first 12 months of looking at that clown's face, uh, you know, you wind up sitting out there. Honestly, you wind up sitting there and you, you hold long philosophical discussions with alligators. Really? Oh, I don't know. Well, what I always say, a guy picks him up and he lays him down. He does the best he could, right? That's what I figured. Well, it goes on and on. You hear guys out there talking away. So we had this, this, uh, this shack. It was called the day room. What a joke. Uh, in that shack, it was always four in the morning. It was always four in the morning. It was dark, and it was filled with lizards, and it was filled with bugs and mosquitoes, and it had a Coke machine that heated the Cokes, the special Coke machine that would just spit out hot Coke, and they'd come bubbling and hissing out at you. And we never could get across to the CEO that we didn't like hot Cokes. We didn't mind lukewarm ones, but the hot ones were bad. You know, they burn you. They're terrible. Have you ever tried to open hot Coke? It shoots all over the ceiling immediately, yeah. And it tastes awful. Well, the CEO never could understand that. You see, he lived in a, a special place where CEOs live. You know, they have little refrigerators and air conditioning. Well, that was another scene. But there was our day room. Now, in the middle of the day room, there were two things. There was an upright piano, terrible upright piano, that had only about half of the strings were left. Because here's the bugs and everything. One thing, at 2 o'clock in the morning, you'd hear a string go. Out there, yeah, they eat. They're termites eating the eating the bridge. Off would go another one, and you'd hear one of the, the. There were about three piano players in the camp, and you'd hear them groaning. Oh boy, there goes yes sir. That's my baby now. I'm done. <laughs> There's only two of them. Well, it was that kind of a scene. Now, in the middle of the day room, we had this long green plywood table that had been supplied by some some nice ladies of the USO or something. It was a terrible old battered table. And it was a ping-pong table. Got it? Ping-pong table. Now, we had ping-pong equipment, which consisted of a soggy net sort of hung down and bent in the middle. And we had these old battered ping-pong paddles that had rubber on one side. It was all worn. You know, guys used them to strike matches on, hit each other with, and the whole thing. And they were all dirty, rotten paddles that were split on the ends, sort of fat and greasy and sweaty and everything. And, and one of them had a little, just a little vestigial piece of sandpaper on the side, that kind of paddle. So we would play night and day, 24 hours a day, ping pong. That's all you do. And, and we had these balls that were soft. If you can imagine soft ping pong balls, they'd come, they'd get hot and they'd melt and they'd have holes punctured. And every month we would get our shipment from the USO or from the special services, we'd get another two dozen ping pong balls. Did you know that during the war, ping pong balls were even rarer? Than gasoline, they ra- you could not buy ping. Oh, they were rationed strictly. Didn't you know that? Yeah, oh, yeah, very much so. They, they, most of the good ping pong balls are made in England, and the ones that they make here are roughly the equivalent of well, they're like Christmas tree ornaments. 
They're, you know, they're awfully, they bounce quick and everything. So we, yeah, they break and everything. So, so I, I remember playing entire, whole months with a, with a ping pong ball just flat on one side. You plop, and it go plop, plop, plop. You're hitting the, no air in it. So we got so that we're playing ping pong 24 hours a day. Just playing ping pong like mad. And, and we all got to be fantastically good ping pong players. When there is nothing else around, you get to be very good at whatever it is, knitting, crocheting, yelling, hitting, fist fighting, anything else, you get good at it. Well, now, I am a left-handed ping-pong player, you see, which added to my stature in the company, and within, I'd say, probably nine months, I became the acknowledged, now I'm telling you the truth, the acknowledged ping-pong shark, the best ping-pong player in Company K. I was really great. I could lay him down, you know, back and forth. So I'm playing ping pong Walt night and day, and I'm playing batting them back. I took the first sergeant, the CO, everybody, and, and we would have these little ping pong championships every couple of weeks. And they would then they got so that they would handicap you. They would, you would have to handicap guys like five points, eight points, and then they'd play for a case of beer and they'd play for this and that. Well, I became absolutely the top ping pong player in the company, and my buddy Gasser was the second best ping pong player in the company. Big tall guy and we were playing ping pong day and that we you know and, and you get so that you you know you know that feeling of being so good at a sport that you play around with it, you know? I would play him from behind the coke machine, you know, backhand. Then I would skid across the across the day room floor on my stomach, you know, pick him up just as I hit. And then I'd run over the shoulder and all that stuff. Oh, just great, you know. Flick with the hands. Well, one day we got shipped. The best ping-pong player in Company K and the second best ping-pong player in Company K got shipped, along with all the other guys. And we arrive up here at Fort Monmouth. Very briefly, we're at Monmouth, and we have never been to New York. Most of us, at least I hadn't, and certainly Gasser hadn't, who was from California. And so the day came, and we're coming into New York, and this is about the third or fourth day we're in New York, and we've already made the scene, you know, of eating at the Automat, and, uh, you know, all the things that guys think about when you go to New York, eating at the Automat, we looked at the Empire State Building, and, uh, we, you know, we, we saw Times Square, and we went, to the, we went to see the Frank Sinatra show, the hit parade, we got the free tickets, we went to the stage door cantina. By now, we are old, seasoned, grizzled makers of the scene in New York, and we're beginning to cast around for something to do, so we came to New York one day. Oh, boy, what a fateful day. We came to New York one fateful day, and I had just gotten paid. Well, now, getting paid in the Army is a monthly operation, most places. Sometimes they once in a while an outfit will pay you a little sooner, but mostly it's a monthly deal. And you've got to make it stretch. There's no question about it. And so on Wednesday, we had gotten paid, and I've got my dough in my pocket. i got about 50 bucks, something like that, which is a lot of dough when you're in the Army, you know. And so I am paid now, and I'm, I'm, I'm playing it real close to the vest. You see, I'm, I'm, not, a, I'm not a great spender. I'm, I'm playing it real close to the vest. And I'm one of those guys, you know, who, who eats sandwiches at the stage door canteen. When I come. never bought a meal when I came to New York, ever. I don't think I bought a meal in the Army for I don't know how many years. You know, you just don't. You, you, you sponge. You get so that you do that. You get free tickets to this. So I'm playing it right to the vest, and so is Gasser. We come to New York, and we go out, and we get our free meal, we're fooling around. It is now Saturday night. Saturday night. And it's a, it's a great Saturday night. You know, we're walking around, making the scene, looking at all the things. We go into the Pepsi-Cola canteen. And we're, we're, we're talking to the chick there. That's where the Castro place is now on Times Square. And we're talking to the chick. And, uh, 
uh, behind the desk there, and she says, yeah, yeah, she, she's suggesting things for us to do. And finally, she says, well, what do you like to do? I mean, outside of the obvious that I can't help you with. And so uh, Gasser says, well, ping pong, by God, ping pong. Where can we play some ping pong? We haven't played, see, since we left down down south. It's been about a week. So, and and all, when you get on, when you get to be a nut on ping pong, you got to play it all the time. It's worse than bowling. So he says ping pong. She says, "Oh, ping pong." Hey, Charlie. Well, Charlie comes over from behind the Pepsi Cola thing, and she says, "Charlie, what about ping pong? These guys want to play ping pong." He says, "Oh, ping pong. Hey, that's a great place up on Broadway. Right up on Broadway, up down there. Right, right up Broadway, a few blocks." And so he gave us the instruction where the ping pong place was. He made a telephone call to find out if they were still in business. And they said, yeah, yeah, well, it's a professional place where you come in and you play ping pong. You, you put down, what is it, what is it, a quarter, a game or something like that. They give you the paddles and you play. And so old Gas and I arrived on that fateful moment. We came up the stairs. It was an upstairs place, I remember. Have you ever seen really beautiful ping pong layouts? Oh, boy. If you're a ping-pong man, your, your, your hand begins to itch. They got these magnificent tables that are just green. They just stand there like jewels, you know. And they're lined, and those nets are tight and white. Oh, boy. And they have the lights that hang down like pool tables. You know, the light, beautiful light. And then that big area back and forth behind the tables, you know, where you can play. It's just it's a beautiful there. And they have the racks with the paddles, all different kinds, you know, the sandpaper and all kinds of paddles. And so we, we walk up there, and Gaston says, wow. He says, And a couple of guys, are, you're listless, like, you know, like, uh, up at 21 to, they're playing ping pong, and we're watching this. Hey, you know, they look pretty good. Yeah, so remember, these are two real ping pong players watching these guys play. You know, Gas, oh, boy, look at this. And so a guy with a green eye shield comes over shortly thereafter and says, you guys want to play? Yeah, okay. He says, well, what table do you want? So we look around. Oh, that one over there. Okay. And so we go to a, a, a fairly secluded table. The light is lit. He lights the lights. He puts the, he says, well, pick your paddles. So we pick the paddles. And he puts a couple of balls down and says, okay. So here it says, this uh, buck in advance or whatever you play. So, so we start to play. Gasser and I, we're getting back in the, in the shape, you know. Oh, we never played on tables. Live tables, Walt? Oh, boy. You know, they bounce. They don't just slither across. They're, they're playing great. Watch this, Gasser. Watch this, boy. <laughs> old Shep's got that old cut going again. Watch this. Now. All right, watch that corner, Gasser. Ah, I knew I'd get you. Huh? Caught you going away, Dad. Well, we're playing away there, you know, sweating it up. So we play about three games, maybe four. We're really having a great time. We're, this is the best time we've ever had on leave. You know, we're batting the ball back. When a guy, a, a little thin guy with dark hair comes over and proceeds to watch us. And then, without any preamble, after I had finished slaughtering Gasser, he says to me, he says, hey, he says, hey, you know, I never played a, a left-handed player. Never played a left-handed player. How would you like to play? Would you mind if I play a game with you? And I say, yeah. Let's go. You mind, Gas? And Gas says, no, boy, I'm pooped. No, whew. I'll sit down. Ah, well, okay, let's go. All right, we'll ping for serve, Mac. So, 
We're pinging for serve. I can see right away this guy's a patsy for a backhand. See? Ping! Ow! Oh. All right, I serve. Okay, so I start playing. He is a sucker for a backhand. And so we proceed to play about three games. And he is saying, wow, man, where'd you learn to play? He said, man, what a backhand. Oh, wow, and he'd fall down. So he'd fall down trying to get my backhand. So by this time, I'm really playing it big. You, know, you feel like 20 feet tall when you're really doing it. And so after about three games, he says, he says, say, he says, what do you say we put a couple of bucks on each game for kicks, huh? Well, I mean, after all, you know. So down goes my two bucks on the, on the, on the seat. He puts two bucks. And now I'm playing like a fiend, you know. I murder him. Pow, there you go, boy. There you go. All right, come on, let's go. I'm playing like a nut, you know. I'm really going. Well, this continues for about three games. When he goes away from the table, he says, I got a phone call just a minute. He comes back and he says, oh, boy. He says, I got to go home. Whew. He says, I got to go. Man, you're the greatest ping pong player ever played. He says, I'll tell you what let's do. He says, I, I, I hate the chicken out like this. He says, you, you want all the dough. He says, what do you say we play everything in your pocket for everything in my pocket? Just one game. So I look over to old Gas, and Gas says, well, it's his dough, man. So I said, Gas, do you want to go in on it? And Gas says, sure, I'll back you up, Dad. Gas has got about 35 simoleons. I have now about 65 rocks, including what I've taken from this guy. So we lay it down on the side of the table. There it is, bud. So we got about 100 bucks laying down there, our entire worldly goods. And so I say, all right, let's ping for serve. We're pinging like 10 minutes. And finally, ow, it bounces past me. Ah, I said, well, pretty lucky. All right, let's go. And he says, okay. And he stands back in the shadows. The first time he's ever done this. He has moved into the shadows. He goes... <laughs> the ball whistles past me and, and back by the radiator, you know? Well, there's one. All right, he's... Come on, move on. <laughs> hey, wait a minute. Pow! Pow! I didn't lay a paddle on it for five straight serves. Five straight serves. I say, all right, Mac. Now I'm getting mad, see? So I say, all right, watch this one. See, now I've got my, 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 my fast, down-sweeping, in-shoot curve. My, 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 my ace curve. You know, I'm going to really throw my ace serve. I'll go into the corner. He goes with a little flick of the wrist. Pow! I didn't lay a paddle on it. He scored 19 straight points before I scored one fluker that hit the edge of the table and went under the spittoon. Well, the final end of the game came maybe seven minutes after we began. This guy says, okay, Mac, thank you. Picks up the hundred bucks and disappears into the shadows. I stood there. Gasser, do you think he's... That was an awful good game he played. Gasser says, wow. Whew. Boy, he sure got warmed up, didn't he? It wasn't until three hours later we realized, we realized, we realized all the way. We hitchhiked all the way back to camp. This is WOR Radio, your station for news. Sunday night at 8 on Channel 9, a runaway missile throws New York City into complete panic in 
The Lost Missile, a television premiere, followed by The Coldest Story. It's your Sunday night double feature on WOR-TV Channel 9. In a moment, The Long John Neville Show. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Wilson, you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4.55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. And it works everywhere I write. Summarizing a doc only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done.